This is DVM Loading, a podcast about the life of professional students from a veterinary perspective. With your hosts, Carling Hemstreet and Caitlin Marr, we go through the daily life of being in veterinary school with a fun twist. Let's get loading! Hey listeners, welcome back to another week of DVM Loading with your amazing host, Caitlin and Carling. And today we have somebody really uh, exciting, or I'm really excited to introduce. We call him Dr. Money, Dr. Money. <laughs> but you can officially know him as Dr. Ryan Williams. And he is someone here that is uh, contributing a lot to the future success of veterinary practice owners and everything. He's teaching us how to be great business people and uh, we're very appreciative and I know a lot of people reached out looking for some financial advice and and maybe what we talk about today can help you answer some of those. Yeah, we um, our first semester here at Texas Tech we actually do have a professions and professionalism class that Dr. Williams teaches uh, and so we figured that he would be a really good resource for our listeners to come in and talk about um, some stuff that we learned in that class as well as some other things, um, especially since we've received, received some questions about it. So, Dr. Williams, do you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, briefly, I, I grew up in far northern California in a, a small town, Eureka. Uh, did my undergraduate studies in Atlanta, Georgia. Started graduate school in Raleigh, North Carolina, and then ultimately moved to Lubbock to finish my Ph.D. at Texas Tech because my wife had taken a faculty job there. Uh, ended up involved with veterinary medicine because I had done some consulting work for the AVMA and following that helped write the business case for the vet school. Thought that I was going to live in Lubbock for the rest of my life and then when <laughs> the opportunity to join the vet school came up I took it and have been excited to be here ever since. Cool. Yeah. Do you like Amarillo better than Lubbock? I don't like Amarillo better than Lubbock. I think both have unique things to offer. I think that the food scene in Amarillo is slightly better. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more chef-owned yeah. restaurants, at least per, you know, as a share of the restaurants. There's more chef-owned restaurants and more diversity in food in that way uh, versus more chain restaurants in Lubbock. Uh, I really miss the enthusiasm around the university in Lubbock. Mm-hmm. There was always a very youthful excitement in Lubbock. Um, I like the weather slightly better here in Amarillo. <laughs> yeah. but it's not as dusty, I've heard. Yeah. It's, it's not as dusty. It's windier, mm-hmm. but not as dusty. Which is surprising because it's pretty dusty here. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy. Uh, I came from South Texas, and this is... Uh, 180 for me. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Yeah, it is the These are hurricane force winds on a daily. <laughs> yes. You so, gotta watch your car doors. Oh, yeah. And uh, I remember backing out of my garage one time and sand just, like, flew off of my car and it, it needs a wash so bad. <laughs> I remember me and, me and Matt were driving uh, before we moved here. We lived in Oklahoma City, so we just drove, you know, east or west um, along I-40, but we uh, were driving into Amarillo and our our car would be pushed to the side. You'd hear, like, the tires chirping because, like, the wind was blowing us literally to the side. And Matt has, like, like a big truck. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, this is a strong wind to be able to, like, chirp the tires as we're driving, like, 70 along I-40. It's crazy. Yeah. 
Well, today we wanted to chit-chat first about hobbies outside of vet school, and I guess for Dr. Williams outside of work in general, and you have a family and everything, if, and if y'all do hobbies together and stuff, um, do you want to share your hobbies that you do in your free time, Dr. Williams? Sure. I, I think, as you said, uh, having a family, that sort of is the, the first activity, so mm -hmm. uh, spend a lot of time making sure that I'm actively involved in our child's life. I feel that the, the key to a successful marriage is that you enjoy spending time with your partner. Mm -hmm. So when I think about, um, you know, what am I going to do in my spare time, it's typically not what do I most want to do, but what do we most mm -hmm. want to do. Uh, so I enjoy doing things in particular that are related to my family's interests and preferences. So. Um, we enjoy camping as a family. Uh, I really enjoy fishing, in particular fly fishing. So we found that we can go camping and I can spend the day on a river and then have that opportunity to, to be with my family mm -hmm. when I'm not on the river. And so that works really nicely. Uh, my daughter is a competitive swimmer and so she's in the pool a lot and I spend a lot of time at the gym where the pool is and that gives me an opportunity to swim myself mm -hmm. and as a function of spending more time swimming I have become interested in training for triathlon so I I spend a lot of time swimming when she's swimming and then cycling on a trainer at night um, and trying to get some runs in every now and then related to the fly fishing I also enjoy tying my own flies I find that to be a relaxing activity Although as my short distance eyesight has faded on me, it has become a lot more challenging. Do you listen to John Denver when you make your own flies? I don't listen to John Denver when I'm tying flies, although everybody should like some John Denver. Um, I am a very eclectic music fan. I listen to all genres and appreciate them. Um, I like to brew my own beer. Mm. I like to try different beers. Um, a man of many talents many and talents, everything. Man. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I know, um, you know, with me having swam, you know, my whole life, I know we've had a lot of really good conversations. I'm hoping that in the summer I can get in the pool. That's my hope. Um, so especially since I'll have more time in the summer. But I, I know we've we've discussed it at length about I'm um, getting back in the water, and I know you also officiate some of your daughter's meets, right? I, I do, in fact, heading to a meet this weekend, and um, I, I, I don't tend to be someone that just engages in community service for the sake of engaging in community service. I try to identify activities that I think are relative strengths for me and also not relative strengths for the population at large. and ended up getting roped into trying officiating and I've you know, when I was younger and in high school I officiated soccer youth soccer I umpired little league baseball wow. and I came to understand that it takes adult volunteers to make youth sports and youth activities in general function so yeah. I, I I didn't think I knew enough about swimming to be an official but it turns out I could learn it really quickly, and now I crush the hopes and dreams of 
of children under the age of 18 and make sure that they have no chance at a swim scholarship. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, I know my, um, my dad was officiated for some of my swimmies, and it was really cool because we, like, when I was going to nationals, I mean, my dad got good enough or high enough of a level of officiating where we could actually... Uh, like he came to a lot of my national meets and he actually started me on a lot of my national meets. So that was something that was really special and cool. So, um, like I think one of my best times, I think he actually started, but anyway, so it's kind of cool to have your parent down on deck with you. Um, yeah, though when you're 16, it's kind of annoying, I guess. (laughs) Um, I probably wasn't as big of a fan of it as I am looking back on it, but, um, it was, it was a cool, cool set, uh, to, to do that with my dad, but. Um, yeah, outside of school, for you and me, Caitlin, I, we don't yeah. do a whole lot outside of school, but... Yeah, I like to think that, well, okay, so if you were to ask me my hobbies and put them on the spot, put me on the spot, I would say taking my dogs on a walk and watching Netflix when I have the chance, because you'll realize in vet school you never have the chance to watch the TV that you'd like. Um, I mean, unless you just procrastinate, which we all do at one point, but I like to do that. I like to just relax, um, go hang out with some friends. I, one of my really good friends lives not too far from Amarillo, so I'll go and see them every now and then, and, and, uh, I like to go outdoors and hike and stuff like that. I love to fish, but that's kind of a thing that I do with my dad and my grandpa, so I haven't, I don't have a fishing pole or anything up here, and if I'm being honest, I prefer bay fishing or river fishing over lake fishing. To me, lake fishing is just boring. (laughs) And so I like to fly fish like Dr. Williams uh, when we go to Colorado every summer and stuff, and uh, living in South Texas, like, we're right off the bay, and so we go bay fishing all the time. I enjoy stuff like that, like hunting, a very outdoorsy gal. My dad kind of, uh, you know, took me under the wing and, and made me his uh, little mini-me in a sense. <laughs> but I uh, I like to play dominoes, too. I'm a fan of 42. Shout out we to Aggies for tournament. teaching me. Yeah, we do. We should have a 42. I have 42. I have dominoes at my house. Oh, okay. I think we just came up with another event that we can have. Yeah, so that's about it. Other than that, I'm either studying or asleep. Yeah, I know for me, outside of school, you know, I work out, uh, hopefully, now the finals are upon us, are uh, coming up, and it's been a little stressful. I haven't been working out as much as I normally do, but uh, I try to work out in the morning before I come in for class, um, and that definitely helps me uh, kind of stay on track and uh, basically accomplish something before I come into school. It kind of, like, starts my day. Uh, and then I just spend time with Matt at the end of the day. So I, I don't do a whole heck of a lot, but I know me and Matt really jo- enjoy going golfing. Uh, that's something that we've done together because it's nice to get outside and spend that time. And then, um, yeah, I'm like you. I, I enjoy hunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I don't. I haven't gone fishing. Uh, Matt's trying to convince me to go offshore fishing. That's something yeah. that he really likes and I haven't done. So That'd be fun debating whether I would like that. So we'll we'll see if that works out whenever we're able to take a trip like that. But if you're gonna go offshore fishing, make sure that you take some Dramamine if yes. you aren't if you aren't used to spending time Yeah, I don't think I'm seasick, but uh Oh I'd probably vomit so much. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Once you don't <laughs> we'll feel see. well there's no there's no turning back when you're out at sea. Yeah. Yeah, that's my my worry. So, I don't know. We'll we'll have to see how it goes. But 
Um, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, our, I guess, hobbies are kind of boring right now. Um, hopefully once we're out of vet school, things will liven up a little bit and we'll become more active. Um, for our talk today, since we have kind of a financial guru on our hands, um, we're going to talk about budgeting and vet school and how it's important, kind of just a little different um, aspects of finances, becoming a veterinarian, and like what it's like going through vet school. And uh, I guess my first question to just kind of hook everyone in is, uh, do you kind of know a range of like starting salaries for veterinarians of all different types, like small animal, large animal, exotics, things like that? You know, salaries have, have really been changing a lot in the last 10 years. Uh, there had been a period where salaries were pretty stagnant, and on the, on the national average, a starting salary was around $70,000. Uh, now, that doesn't account for what would typically happen in the first five years of somebody's employment once an associate is able to demonstrate skill at a clinic, uh, and that there's a commitment to doing well at that clinic. Typically, individuals see quite a rise in their in their starting salaries. But since that time, salaries have risen, starting salaries have risen quite a bit, and I think a lot of it has to do with the relative shortages of veterinarians. Uh, there's a lot of demand for veterinarians, and for whatever reason, the the labor market isn't clearing completely, and so, you know, the best way for an employer to it attract an employee is to offer a higher salary and mm -hmm. so um, currently I would I the national average uh, for all private practice is around hundred and fifteen thousand uh, dollars that was for graduates last year um, the AVMA publishes a good bit of this information as and I think that the AAVMC also publishes some of this information um, so nationally, an average of about $115,000. Here in Texas, because of the size of the economy, uh, cost of living in the locations where people are working, I would guess that would be more like $120,000 mm -hmm. on average. Um, if we want to break it down into the different yeah. areas, um, Companion Exclusive typically pays the most on average, but that is for starting salaries. And if you look in, and track individual salaries over time, the companion exclusive group, some of those individuals will really see an increase in their salaries, but a lot of them will stay pretty stagnant as mm -hmm. people settle into uh, different work-life balance situations, don't want to take on ownership opportunities. And so you'll see a big spread in the companion animal salaries as people have more experience. Um, the next would be, you know, your mixed animal practitioners. Uh, I would guess that in Texas, probably starting about $110,000 a year. And so that's a difference of about $20,000 between small animal exclusive and mixed. But again, you start to move outside of those first five years and those mixed animal practitioners are gonna to start to close that gap pretty quickly on average mm -hmm. because most mixed animal practitioners are going to pursue some type of, of ownership or, or retained earnings from the practice that they're working in as opposed to the large number of small animal practitioners that are 
just happy to earn their salary mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. continue in that way. Uh, food animal predominant is, you know, probably another ten to $15,000 less than mixed animal to start, again, with a huge upside. Um, but starting, you know, individuals need to be able to really prove themselves mm-hmm. in that setting and that they're going to be able to sustain that that practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then equine is, is kind of a, an interesting case because the starting salaries for equine are quite a bit lower. So if we have an average of 120000 uh, a year for private practice in Texas, uh, equine is going to be around $80,000. It just breaks a, my heart. As yeah. a starting salary. <laughs> but again, we have to be kind of cautious about these numbers because there's a lot of factors that go into the equine practice model and a lot of times you have a situation where people are interning for for a year and working their rear off and making nothing and then in their first couple of years as an associate they're building a client base and their salary is going to be determined in large part by their ability to build a client base. Mm-hmm. As that client base builds, they can make more money. Mm-hmm. But if you're a mediocre equine vet, you probably are going to wash out of equine mm-hmm. um, or, or just accept that you're yeah. not going to make very much money. Do you think that's because a lot of the equine veterinarian like contracts, um, like salary contracts, are based more on off of sales? Or is it more just their like straight base salary is just lower, uh, and then they negotiate up from there? You know, I I don't I don't think that it's the the breakdown between you know production and salary so much as it is that the the buyers of equine veterinary services are individuals that are largely looking for. A, long-term relationship mm, for sure and they expect expertise and excellence from the practitioner and so a new veterinarian if you're working in a practice with anybody that has any experience none of those clients are going to choose you over the existing veterinarians when you're first starting which is you know it and it's more more evident in that situation than in any of the other subfields uh, because some of these folks are dealing with horses that are valued in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And mm-hmm. so you, I, th- I think that it's really more of a, you have to prove yourself. And um, if you're not capable of maintaining those relationships, then you're not going to make very much money. But if you are good, th- again, there's a lot of upside. So, you know, we know a lot about starting salaries in these different areas. Um, the other interesting thing about equine is that women on average are going to make $10,000 a year less starting than their male counterparts. Mm -hmm. And I don't really know what the explanation is for that. Do you have any experience in that, Caitlin, since you've worked at a equine practice? Um, no, just because at the time I worked there, most of the residents, um, were women. And so I didn't have anything to compare off of. And plus, that's a resident salary, which isn't, you know, representative so of, like, Texas a clinician. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I will say, you know, statistically looking, I, I agree that uh, male equine practitioners do start out 
getting more money and and for some reason people tend to trust men a little bit more with that stuff and I don't know why the yeah. equine industry is switching uh, pretty heavy to females I mean the vet industry in general is heavily saturated by women oh yeah absolutely. and so but horse people are particular I'm one of them I agree I like the long-standing relationship and and if somebody wants my services I want them to prove I guess and show me you know how they're going to be better and and uh yeah. yeah I also think I know it's something that we talked about in class was that you know with the companion animal or the small animal clinics typically I I feel like part of the reason that their salary is higher is because typically they're in cities and the cost of living is higher in cities. That certainly has a lot to do with it. So, like, you, they need to have a higher salary so that you can live in the city that they... Well, and... So, like, I think it's something to just keep in mind. It's also driven by demand mm -hmm. that, you know, you, in a... Not even a... a well, I get any, any larger community, um, you know, communities of... 30,000 people or more are there are going to be multiple clinics mm -hmm. um, there's going to be some competition for mm -hmm. uh, attaining clients um, and as as there is that demand for those services which grows as the population grows the number of clinics available are likely not going to grow as quickly as the population grows and so there's always going to be a little bit of a lag in being able to meet that demand and then as there's a lag in meeting the demand there's going to be an ability to charge more for services mm -hmm. um, and and that's you know there's a lot of factors that go into it uh, I do think that the the difference in male and female starting salaries in equine is particularly interesting because there's basically zero difference mm -hmm. across the other subfields mm -hmm. um, yeah I think that's a, a client uh, it would be interesting to see, like, do a survey of the clients, mm -hmm. like yeah. new clients coming in. That would be interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I guess our next question for you is, um, how many vet schools do you know of that offer financial training to vet students? Um, and are there some vet schools that don't offer any in general? I know here at Texas Tech's uh, vet school we have business classes incorporated into the curriculum. Um, so could you just talk on that a little bit? Yeah, so I I don't know every single school's curriculum, mm -hmm. and so I want to be careful that I don't inadvertently throw somebody under the bus. My assumption is that in our current environment, every single school is going to be making some effort to help students understand mm -hmm. um, the importance of some financial knowledge, maybe not business management, but at least being financially aware. Mm -hmm. um, there are some schools that do a much better job than others. Um, and But I do think that every school is working toward doing a better job. We are lucky here that we started the new school. For sure. That the leadership of the school cared about making sure that students are emotionally and financially healthy. Mm -hmm. uh, a large pitch for the state legislature in arguing for the existence of the school was that we would do things different so that we had practice-ready veterinarians. And part of being a practice-ready veterinarian is knowing how to make business decisions within the practice 
whether you are the owner or not. Mm-hmm. And and so, um, you know, we we worry a lot about the success and the sustained involvement in the profession from our graduates. And if you're not financially healthy and you're not emotionally healthy, you're not likely to continue to be a practicing veterinarian. Mm-hmm. And given that there's a shortage of veterinarians in the state of Texas, we need to do a good job of making sure that we not only train good veterinarians, but that we give them the tools to sustain that into mm-hmm. their futures. Uh, and so our curriculum was built around the idea that there were going to be credit hours dedicated to the training of veterinarians in these financial skills, where most other schools, it's a constant fight to try to take a little bit of time wherever they possibly can to fit these things into the curriculum. Yeah, and I really am appreciative of the curriculum here doing that because I am not a business savvy person at all. And the biggest thing that I've seen working and um, visiting with other people is that veterinarians right off the bat generally are not good business people. They're fantastic veterinarians and um, something we've been taught (laughs) um, in our classes that most of them make poor financial and business decisions. And so having that education has been really nice. I mean, we've only had one class with uh, Dr. Williams, but so far, I mean, it's helped out a lot and I feel more uh, informed on things to look out for in the future and maybe plan. And so uh, I remember one day in class, we planned what our retirement stuff would look like. And uh, I got to work a bit to make the retirement look like how I wanted it to. And so uh, it's pretty neat, but Uh, I think that's a unique thing for us. Yeah, and I think it's also really important just because knowing the veterinary industry, I know the student debt that a lot of veterinarians carry leads into the reason that a lot of them commit suicide. Mm -hmm. So I think educating students while they're in school and basically like getting ahead of of that education so that people can start planning um, their financial decisions on being in vet school is really useful um, for preventing that Um, you know, like that emotional side of um, feeling like you're in a hole and you can't get out. And one of the keys to all of that is that we need to do a better job of helping students recognize that maybe this isn't the right career path for them. Um, For those students who are going to end up needing to borrow a lot of money and simultaneously are recognizing that they're not quite as talented as, as some of their counterparts, instead of encouraging them to just continue down the path, um, trying to find ways to offer support to help a a student transition away from a career as a veterinarian to some other career that is more financially rewarding for them. Um, And, you know, that's, that's something that has not really been the case in recent years with vet school. But historically, veterinarians were individuals that had a lot of connection to agriculture and especially animal agriculture. And there were alternatives that mm-hmm. if, you, if you started practicing veterinary medicine and you realized it wasn't really for you, there were other things that you could do to sustain the lifestyle that you wanted to sustain. And you know, we've become so advanced in veterinary medicine in terms of our understanding of the science and the the tools that that are used 
that it's a huge investment to train a veterinarian mm-hmm. with, with to the degree that it needs to be, and you in some ways become too specialized, um, and it makes it hard to find alternatives. And so helping students understand the true cost mm-hmm. of investing in becoming a veterinarian, and then making sure that okay, if I'm if I'm facing those costs, then how do I make sure that I get paid on the back end mm-hmm. to make sure that not only get do I get to do the thing that I'm enjoying doing for a profession, but then I also have the money and the time to do those those hobby types of things that we ta- started talking about mm-hmm. uh, in my spare time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's something that I can relate to a lot. Uh, that I've talked to a lot of people about when I tell them, oh, I want to go to vet school um, at, when I was still in my undergrad years. And they were asking, what, what are your future plans? And they were like, that's crazy. That's a lot of student debt and everything. And I took the approach of looking at it as an investment in myself. And uh, yeah, exactly my future. I, I personally have taken out quite a bit of loans and will for vet school. and. And that's just the reality I have to face. I'm blessed with scholarships and stuff like that. Um, but I guess it just takes that willingness and, and you have to know what the future looks like for you with the, that debt and everything and be willing to kind of uh, live frugally and not you know, be ready and expecting to be a big baller right out of vet mm-hmm. school. Uh, I'm prepared to, you know, do my loan repayments and everything, but I, I myself couldn't let the daunting debt stop me or skew me from wanting to, you know, pursue veterinary medicine. But I do think it is something important to look at for those that are on the fence because uh, it's not just, you know, a thousand bucks or two thousand bucks a semester that you're just throwing at it. So if you're truly not passionate or you get into vet school and after your first year, second year, whatever, you decide this isn't what it is, you you don't owe an explanation to anybody. You just do what's best for you because you're spending more of your money. <laughs> yeah, we had a, a, cl- uh, a classmate of ours, actually, mm-hmm. um, in our first semester. He So he had had his first baby girl, mm-hmm. uh, his first kid, um, like two weeks before orientation, yeah. maybe a week. Uh, and so he had a newborn. His wife... Uh, Um, was working in Canyon. Luckily, they lived here, and he um, started vet school, and, you know, about six weeks in, he was like, I really don't feel like I could do this. Veterinarian is for me. Like, I can't Mm -hmm. see myself doing this, and, you know, I'm spending all this time away from my, like, family, and I just have this newborn daughter, and I feel like I don't have any time with her, and he was luckily offered a job at uh, West Texas A&M doing exactly what he wanted to do, and so he took it, and he left the program, and I mean, I don't see any reason why he would spend any more time or money or energy to be here when he can't see himself being a veterinarian and he could spend more time with his family at home doing a job that he actually is really passionate about. So yeah. he uh, he left and, you know, he was a really nice guy. And so we um, we talked to him uh, or he get, basically gave our class or some people in our class that he was close to an explanation as to why he was leaving, but he didn't owe that to anyone. Mm-mm. You know, and I don't think anyone blamed him for leaving. No, I think it was like a very respectable thing because he didn't waste his time, his resources or anything. And and it takes a lot of uh, courage to leave this profession, this opportunity once you've 
been in it, but uh, what we forget to mention is that he has already has had his master's and mm -hmm. was getting ready to defend for his PhD, so he's already spent a lot of time in school. And so I think that was a really courageous thing for him to recognize. And I think a lot of people are just afraid to recognize mm -hmm. if they get in here and they lose the passion. They feel like they're stuck. Yeah, and like that, that is, you are never stuck. <laughs> it is perfectly okay for you to leave a program if you can't see yourself doing it. Like, don't <laughs> spend your money. Just don't. Don't, don't do put it. yourself through the classes. <laughs> but we, as economists, we talk about the sunk cost fallacy mm -hmm. and that human beings have a really hard time making optimal decisions if there are large sunk costs. So, a sunk cost is a cost that's been incurred that's not recoverable. And so, time spent in vet school or time spent preparing to get into vet school, those are big sunk costs. And a student that is that is here that maybe is starting to recognize that they aren't as passionate about it as, you know, now that the reality is here, they're, they're questioning whether they should stay or go, and they start thinking about all of the energy that they've put into everything, how much their families have supported them or friends yes. have supported them, or gosh, if I leave, then I took a seat from somebody else. And there's all of these thoughts that are not rational thoughts in making a decision about whether or not to continue your training mm -hmm. as a veterinarian. The only question is, is the additional time that it's going to take me to become a veterinarian worth it to me to become a veterinarian? Mm -hmm. And if you're saying, gosh, I don't think I really want to do this, well, then the answer is absolutely no. Mm -hmm. And go ahead and leave and find that thing that is going to be better for you. But don't let those don't let all of those feelings about how other people might feel or that you're going to let people down impact the choice about what you do the next day. Because mm -hmm. your next day, you only get to spend those 24 hours doing whatever you can do in those 24 hours. And each hour that you spend doing something that's making you miserable is a really bad idea. Yeah. Um, so kind of moving on from that, you know, talking about um, students being on track with their um, money. You know, we um, talked about in our class as well, um, being in vet school, like, is it a good idea for vet students to budget, make a budget? Um, I guess it's probably even something for, um, you know, when you're out in life, not just students, but um, to make a budget and stick to it and see how that helps your financial goals. Well, it, if you don't budget, it's impossible to adequately achieve your financial goals. Your, your financial goals are going to be dependent upon your ability to save. And you don't save if you don't know the difference between the amount of money coming in and the amount of money going out. And so budgeting is critical for achieving any financial goal whatsoever. Uh, retirement, buying a home, um, being able to go out and buy a nice bottle of wine when you're at dinner. All of those things are dependent on knowing how much you have coming in and how much is going out. As a vet student, you don't have much coming in. <laughs> You've got a whole bunch going out. Yeah. And, and so it's a little bit different because your financial goals aren't really, you know, they're not salient and you're you're recognizing, gosh, I'm just accruing a whole bunch of debt. It's going to cost me all of this in the future. Um, what's the difference between 
blowing my budget a little bit this month versus not. And mm -hmm. the problem is that the consequences of the decision about your budget at any given time while you're a student are going to be born in the future, but you don't have to deal with that right away. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, one of the things that I tell students is for every $100,000 that you borrow in vet school, it's probably going to cost you somewhere around $700 to $800 a month in payments for 20 years mm -hmm. when you finish. And if you think about what a $700 or $800 payment is in terms of a, of a vehicle or a mortgage or vacations, that's a lot of money mm -hmm. over 20 years time. And I can think of a whole lot of things that I would like to do with $700 a month. And so as you're borrowing that money, every you know, $100,000, that's a big amount, but every $100 that you choose to spend beyond what your budget is, is going to cost you. And you're, you're not just paying for it now, you're going to pay for it for 25 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, last semester when we had to uh, utilize the budget for our class, it really helped because I've never had a budget. And uh, I was able to not spend, you know, my full budget, which is really cool and unlike me. Uh, but I will say this semester I have fallen off the horse on that. <gasps> no. And I know I keep thinking every time I look at what I'm spending, I'm like, oh, Dr. Ryan Williams will get so mad at me. <laughs> and all I can think is money. Money's leaving. And, uh, yeah, you have no income unless you do, like, some side work and stuff. Unless you um, get a husband. Yeah, a rich husband. <laughs> oh, but I'm terrible about the budget this semester, and I definitely have learned my lesson. And, you know, from here on out, I'm going to make it a point to, uh, you know, keep a running budget uh, just because it makes you better. Plus, you know, we're learning how to be better business people, so you're going to need those skills in the future. Might as well learn and mess up now before it's an entire company and business on your shoulders. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I know we touched on uh, student loans, so do you want to touch on some things to factor in uh, for incoming vet students when they're taking out student loans? Yeah, the, I think the primary thing when you take out student loans is to make sure that you are being really responsible about the choice that you're making. A lot of times I, I think students either get into the trap of really not wanting to take on any debt and not taking enough student loans, finding themselves with limited resources while they're a student, and then unexpected expenses come up, and then they have credit card debt or they're taking out personal loans, things that are, are going to be at higher interest rates that are just not as good of financial opportunities. and so. You want to be frugal in what you borrow because you don't want to carry more debt than you need. So you don't want to borrow money to buy, you know, mm -hmm. to to use to buy a car or to use to take a spring break trip. But you want to borrow enough money that you have money set aside for those unexpected expenses that might end up hurting you elsewhere. Uh, and that balance is I can't tell you how much you need for you. I I can't 
you know, my suggestion for most first-year students is go ahead and take out the max, mm -hmm. and then as you, if you put some of that aside in a savings account, then the next year you don't need to take out the max, maybe. Um, but it's a it's a discussion about wh what are your short-term financial goals, which hopefully is to graduate with not much debt, but also to be able to weather the storm if if you need to. Mm -hmm. Um, and apply for scholarships. Yeah. yeah. And I know during our class, uh, we talked about investing some. Um, now is what you can do as a vet student or in the future. Uh, could you kind of elaborate on some of your recommendations? Yeah, the, you know, the first thing is that you don't want to borrow more than you need to borrow. But you also have an opportunity anytime that you have earned income to be setting that money aside. And you know, for young people, the opportunity to invest through a Roth IRA product is, is really advantageous because all of the growth in value in whatever you hold within that Roth IRA, you'll be able to take out tax-free at the point that you retire. Now, for somebody studying in a professional program, the expectation is that you're going to be in a very high tax bracket at the point you retire and you're currently in a very low tax bracket. So you've paid taxes on any you know money that you earned over the summer and if you don't have to have it for school, now is a great time to go ahead and, and start that saving for retirement process because the sooner that you start with compounding interest, the more that you're going to have available through growth and if you can pull that money out without having to pay taxes on it in retirement that will be really valuable compared to all of the money that you are going to have to pay taxes on at that point in time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah that's something I need to look into. Yeah. <laughs> I need to, I've never been taught anything about investing and so that's something so interesting to me uh, just because my one of my really good uh, friends, her grandparents were really good at investing. And so they were able to kind of facilitate and set up, you know, their grandchildren's dreams and stuff because they were so smart all those years ago to invest. And so that's something I need to look into. Yeah. Uh, I just need to get some money first. I was literally <laughs> talking to Matt last night about how we need to start um, putting some money away for retirement. <laughs> and he was like, well, you know, we only have one income right now. And I'm like, but you have no idea in like three years, you know, like it could still be quite a bit of money. So, And you have to be a little bit careful, too, that I think a lot of people when they when they are starting the process of saving, they get excited about the stories they hear of people who have purchased stocks or bonds or, or done some sort of investing in markets mm -hmm. and, and it's like it's sort of like Vegas that you only ever hear the stories from the people that won mm -hmm. in Vegas you never hear the stories about the 99.9% .9 of people that go to Vegas and give every penny that they played games with to the casino mm -hmm. and so it's the same thing with investing that really you need to think about saving as a long-term plan and that investing can be part of that saving 
as long as it's a long-term plan because there's going to be ups and downs and the hope is that the growth of our economy as a whole continues to be positive over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And I know we had recently talked about uh, VBMA on one of our episodes about clubs um, being to be involved in, and and you're, um, I think you're, aren't you over VBMA for us? Well, he's the v faculty. He's advisor. the faculty. Yes, I, I advise. <laughs> um, VBMA is is student led, which is mm -hmm. a super appropriate. I think all student organizations should be really driven by students, but mm -hmm. in particular if we're talking about a business management association, then gosh, we probably need to make sure that we have student leaders that are getting experience mm -hmm. managing. Mm -hmm. Yes. So could you tell me of the benefits of joining VBMA? Like a, should a first-year vet student do it um, or should they wait until you know, second, third year when they start getting information about being business owners, then they're they're finally looking for some guidance. I think that for any student that is interested in owning a practice at some point in time, whether being a, a single practitioner clinic that they own or buying into the ownership of a practice, absolutely should be involved with VBMA. I also think any student that has any thought that they want to be the best possible practitioner that they can be within a clinic should also be a member of VBMA because the skills that are are going to be presented to you over time through the different workshops that that are hosted by VBMA they apply equally to both a business decision maker that's an owner as well as a practitioner in a clinic that never has any desire to own. Decisions about what sorts of treatments to offer and the value of those treatments and how many resources to use and uh, all of the day-to-day moment-in, moment-out decisions that get made are driven first and foremost by what's best for the animal because that's the oath that you take. Mm -hmm. But right on the heels of that is that you have a, a client that owns that animal and so you have to consider what they are willing to pay for and able to pay for. And then right behind that is you're running a business and that business has to sustain itself because if it doesn't sustain as a business, there is no caring for the animals. Mm -hmm. So everybody really should be participating, at least in some of the VBMA events. Uh, and then the other thing that VBMA does for you is if you're really invested in it and you, you earn the certificate, it is a way to signal to employers that you have thought about these types of issues and they're not going to have to beat it over your head that mm -hmm. you're, you really need to be thinking about the cost of things as you're suggesting them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's when we got told about VBMA our first semester, we were all really excited and, and Carling and I are members and a lot of people in our school are members. Uh, we're working towards that, that certificate uh, because I know I personally want to own a veterinary practice one day and I think that would only benefit me 
plus, you know, having no business savvy background or anything, uh, it's just kind of a good place to start. And so um, I'm really appreciative of the VBMA and plus, I mean, it's just another fun club to join. Yeah, I, I agree with Caitlin. I'm in VBMA for the exactly the same reasons. I uh, don't have any business experience and nor do I want to go get an MBA after uh, finishing my DVM. I'm not going back to school. So, mm-hmm. uh, so you know, VBMA is my way of basically learning as much as I can while I'm still in school. Uh, and then basically when I when I can go out and practice, I'll at least have that baseline knowledge that I've learned. So that's why I think me and Caitlin have been in it, but um, it, it is a really good club. And even if you aren't a member, typically, or at least here at Texas Tech, we have some, whenever we do um, like a wet lab or a, um, a actual like workshop, typically we extend that to the whole school as mm-hmm. well. So it, even if you're not a member of VBMA or you, you want to be a member of other clubs, there are still typically some VBMA workshops that you can attend as well. Yeah. Um, so just keep that in mind and maybe look out for that if you if you want to be involved in that. And so speaking about wanting to own your own practice in the future, something I'm interested in, and I believe a lot of people in this, I guess, incoming generation of veterinarians, uh, what is some advice, if you could give any, to um, kind of help them start out on the right foot of owning a practice in the future? I think the probably the first and most important thing is to observe to pay attention to how practices that you are spending time in operate. Uh, If you have access to the decision maker and you observe some sort of a management decision being made, ask why was that decision made? What what factors went into that decision making? Uh, You can play a game of asking yourself, what would I do if I were in this situation and seek feedback as to whether or not that would be uh, a good deal or not. The other thing is practice getting along with people. Mm -hmm. Being an owner of a business is partially about the dollars and cents, but really the success of a business is going to be driven by people. So you have to be a good veterinarian and the veterinarians that you employ have to be good and effective. The everybody that a client interacts with has to be a pleasant human being, somebody that can help them. And so practicing getting along with people, especially people that disagree with you or people that maybe aren't really the kind of people that you prefer hanging out with, um, maybe their personalities rub you the wrong way, Figuring out how to manage those relationships will be really important because you have to be able to maintain a client base. You want to be able to grow a client base, Mm -hmm. and you've got to be able to work with different kinds of people. Uh, And then the last thing is practice being personally, financially smart. So budget for yourself and your household, and practicing doing that will help you budget when you're running a business. Mm Practice making investment decisions yourself as to where you're going to put your money. Uh, You've saved some money. Are you going to keep it in a savings account in case you need a new water heater? Or are you going to send that money to pay down the loan on your car? Or are you going to go on vacation? Mm -hmm. Making those decisions and practicing making those decisions will be important 
when you own a practice and you have a question about bringing on another veterinarian or expanding the the number of exam rooms that you have or all of those types of questions the answers to them are not in a textbook the answer to all of those things is an understanding about the costs and benefits associated with doing something different and the trade-offs that exist mm -hmm. yeah that's really good that's really good. I think we got some good advice from Dr. <laughs> Williams today. I know. It's been so long since we've talked about business, and, and uh, I know veterinary medicine, uh, sometimes we struggle with the business aspect, having kind of the servant's heart wanting to do things um, free or discount heavily, and, and there's a time and a place for that. Uh, but we appreciate having you on here, Dr. Williams. When Thank I've, you so much. I've missed I've missed your class. It's it's always disappointing that I finished the the first semester and then you guys are all busy doing other things and I don't really ever get to visit with you. And yeah. well, we miss you too. We definitely would rather have profession and professionalism than micro at 8 a.m. <laughs> I miss the <laughs> the gentle music in the morning. <laughs> that was a highlight for me. Um, so something we do here. I mean, our listeners know and everything. Uh, our win for the week and we we had asked Dr. Williams about what his win for the week was and uh, <laughs> he I'm, said I'm, he doesn't have one. I have not been winning this him week. Being, I'm him surviving. being on this podcast is a win for him. <laughs> sure, that, that <laughs> sounds great. You know we like to keep it real. We've, Carling and I have both had uh, weeks where we didn't have any wins so uh, this is just the reality of being an adult. So my win for the week, I actually have one and I got to attend a wet lab uh, that the equine uh, club here put on and so that was really fun we got to work with lameness locators which are fancy and expensive and uh, so that was a good time it was nice to just get out and put my hands on some horses yeah my win for the week was this week in clinical skills we got to play with some baby goats oh Oh my gosh! How could I have forget? Have you ever held a baby goat? Oh I have not, and I it told I told my friend Sydney that I didn't want to work on goats in the future. And then when we stepped into clinical uh, skills lab last week, I saw them, and this one just came up to me and started nibbling on me. And I picked it up and carried it around like a baby the whole day. And it was the best time of my life. One fell asleep on my shoulder. Yes. And I about died. One was trying to eat my coveralls, and I just had the best day ever. It was um, just really good goat therapy. It was. So I think I'll service goats now in the future. Yeah, yeah. I would definitely agree with that. I would want I would want to work on goats. I would want to have goats, too. Mm, I don't think I'd want goats, but... Mm, I would own goats, for sure. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, um, as always, if y'all have any questions or um, ideas for future episodes... Please reach out to us on our email, dvmloadingpodcast at gmail.com. And a fun little thing we haven't shared with anyone yet is um, there is a vetted, uh, what is it, the Gazette? or the Gazette, Vet Gazette yeah. on, uh, through SAVMA, it's the uh, editorial through SAVMA um, called the Vet Gazette, is doing a little little piece on us yeah. um, just to get the word out. So um, if you are interested in checking that out, um, it'll be on uh, Tuesday, April 25th. Yeah, so stay tuned for that. We're super excited um, reaching out and uh, kind of connecting uh, to other vet schools, and, and there's 
uh, two girls who run the Vet Gazette, and they're from different vet schools. And so it was neat to reach out to them, and they heard our idea, and they're supporting us by writing a piece on us, and we're so thankful. And so you'll have to check that out and share it around your school and everything. And uh, I guess five-star rating, Carlin, Five-star right? rating, always. Drop it <laughs> down below. There's also a comment section now, so if you want to drop a comment, too, we'd love that. Yes. Well, as always, have a great week, and wreck them. Okay.